Ethics Society and Sarsara Club, we wanted to thank you for coming out. We are from Rob Willig, Peggy Cottrell, and Professor Rabinovich um, on beating BRCA, the importance of breast cancer screening. Um, Sarsara is an organization which helps to improve the lives of Jewish women and their families, as well as those with increased genetic risk for breast or ovarian cancer. While their expertise is in helping Jewish women, they also work with men. Um, and first up, we're going to have Professor Rabinovich speak. She's the chair of the Jewish Studies Department at Stern and directs the Legacy Heritage Jewish Educators major. She is a breast cancer survivor, and she's here to tell us her story. Thank you, Meira, and thank you to everybody who came tonight. This evening, I would like to share with you some of the lessons that I learned as a result of the battle I had with breast cancer. But before I begin, I want to add a, a couple of statistics. Haredi women are 70% less likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer, but 30% more likely to die as a result of breast cancer. They don't routinely examine themselves, they don't go to doctors, and they don't necessarily get diagnosed until the cancer is very advanced. There's no reason that you need to worry about getting tested necessarily at your age, but it's never too early to learn what normal breast tissue feels like. And normal will vary over the course of the month. It will vary as you get older and as your body changes. Because knowing what is normal and what feels different is where my story begins. One day when performing a self-breast exam, I felt a lump. I made an appointment to see my doctor, who didn't seem so concerned, but followed protocol and sent me on for further tests. With each successive test, the initial feeling of blasé wore off, and I began to suspect that something was not quite right. And with this suspicion came lesson number one that I had through my battle. Uncertainty is worse than knowledge. Not knowing if I had cancer, not knowing if the cancer was malignant, not knowing what the treatment would entail, this was all much harder than knowing the facts. Yes, I had cancer. Yes, it was malignant. And yes, this is how the doctors were proposing to treat it. Once the pieces were in place, once I knew what I was dealing with, I was able to cope. Lesson two was concurrent to my first lesson. During the initial week of testing, I had learned that one of my oldest friends was sitting Shiva for her daughter, her 18-year-old daughter, who had recently died of breast cancer. She was living in Chicago and I was in New York. We had been friends since second grade. I really wanted to go out to Chicago to be Menachem Avel her. I wasn't able to in the end, but what I learned from that experience was perspective. Because even as I was coming to terms with what was happening to me, I was grateful. I was grateful that it was I who had been diagnosed and not one of my children. Ask any parent who has had to watch their child battle a disease. They would give anything to trade places. I was grateful that I was not being tested the way my friend was. The third lesson I had is more straightforward. I realized early on that one of my priorities for life that year was to keep it as normal as possible. For me, that meant continuing to teach. At the time, I was teaching at Central Yeshiva University High School for Girls and at Stern, and I was able to teach throughout the year. I'm very grateful to the administrators at the time, to the teachers who covered my classes, and to the students who learned with me. There were many days when I came in and I had to stay seated the entire time, when I couldn't raise my right hand to write on the board. My students stayed focused, they wrote what needed to be written and learned with me. My, year that, my life that year was not only about survival. 
Lesson number four was the power of community. As part of my decision to continue teaching, I decided to share with my colleagues and students what was going on. I wanted them to understand why I would be absent and to feel comfortable asking me questions and not having to ask my daughters. At the time, my oldest daughter was at Stern and my second daughter was at Central. I'm generally a private person and sharing the news that I had breast cancer was not something that came naturally to me. So I was rather taken aback in a positive way with the result of my sharing, the overwhelming support and the sense of community that sprang up around me. Students would send notes and flowers. Teachers would drop by with food and drink known to have medicinal value. Battling cancer can be very lonely, but the support of the community reminded me that I was not alone. The power of community was manifest with friends and neighbors, all of whom wanted to do something to help. Lesson number five was learning to let others give. Friends would drop off food. They would ring the doorbell late at night to make sure of my Hebrew name. This was for my neighbor who was traveling to Uman for Rosh Hashanah and wanted to daven for me at the Kever of Rav Nachman. They would drive me to school. They would drive me to doctor's appointments. And they helped me with, with what was perhaps the hardest challenge, though I smile now as I recollect it, the first day that I wore shaitel. I had always covered my hair, but with hats, as I realized that my hair would be affected by chemo, meaning I wouldn't have any left, I decided I wanted to start seeing myself with some hair and began wearing a shaitel. Wearing a shaitel and walking out the door the first time felt like having a scarlet letter, but one with a C emblazoned on my clothing. I was sure that everyone knew what was going on, and this was before I was making the news public. So two good friends came to me to my house at Shabbos to really hold my hand as I walked out the door. Learning how to receive and let friends give was an important lesson and one that greatly helped my journey. Lesson number six was the power of Sheilat Rav. I'm not sure if he's aware, but at one key point in my treatment, my oncologist, Dr. Hoffman, reached out to Rabbi Willig with a Shaila on my behalf. I had two rounds of chemo, but for the fourth session of my first round, it was scheduled to be on Thursday, which was the first day of Rosh Hashanah. I was able to push off the chemo. I didn't have to go in on Yantif, but the question was, when do we push it off to? There were two options. Option A, for the Monday after Rosh Hashanah, which meant that I would not be allowed to fast at all on Yom Kippur, or option B, to postpone until after Yom Kippur. I should note that the first round of chemo I had, one of the drugs was extremely, extremely dangerous. They couldn't put it into the regular chemical drip that I had for every other drug. They had to inject it directly into my veins. And it was absolutely crucial that I stay hydrated. That day, the following day, I had to come back into the oncologist's office to get hydrated and for the entire week after. So my doctor, who had Rabbi Willig's number on speed dial, made a call on my behalf. The psaac that he received and passed on to me was that I should have treatment on Monday during Aserjime Tshuva. I went on Monday for treatment. I went on Tuesday for hydration. At the end of the week, still very weak, both words, okay, I'm seeing how they're written now, I got ready for Yom Kippur. I live around the block from my shul, so I was able to walk to go for shul for 10 minutes of Kol Nidre, which was really important for me at the time. I went back home, climbed into bed over Yom Kippur, which was Shabbat that year. I ate normal meals or as normal as they could be for somebody who was post-chemo. 
I drank a lot and slept a lot. I made it to shul for the last 10 minutes of Ni'ilah. Definitely not a typical year. But I had faith that what I was doing was deemed necessary for me that year by the medical authority that was overseeing my treatment and the halachic authority with whom he consulted. And that gave me a peace of mind. From the perspective of 13 years later, I can add one more lesson, the power of giving and of paying it forward. The power of being able to listen to women newly diagnosed either with breast cancer or any other form of cancer who are uncertain and panicking and to be able to show them that there is hope, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that there will be a time when life will return to normal. But I must confess that even though life has returned to normal, it's a new feeling to normal. In the past 13 years, there have been many milestones. There have been graduation for my children from elementary school and high school, from college, master's programs, and I even received my doctorate during this time. There have been celebrations, bat mitzvahs, weddings, grandchildren. There have been the simple pleasures of watching grandchildren empty every box of toys on your basement floor and invite me to come and sit down and play, of marathon, marathon card games and other board games on Shabbat afternoon, of weekends in camp. But with every milestone and at every simcha and even routine moments, there's a sense, like Emily realized in our town, of how wonderful life is, a sense of gratitude, a sense of akarata tov. And I think I would end my story with simply Shechianu v'kimanu v'higianu lazman hazeh. If anybody would have told me 13 years ago that this is a speech that I would be giving and that I've in fact given a few times, it would have been beyond my imagination. So thank you for letting me share my story once again and may it help you in whatever way it can. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, next, we're going to have Peggy Cottrell. She is a genetic counselor for Sharshara and is here to speak a little bit about the importance of screening. Um, so, uh, Hello, everybody. I'm so glad that you came to the program. I'm going to be sharing my screen so you can see my lovely slides and not my face. Um, so, um, just the title, which we don't have to talk about, just a teeny bit more about Sharsharet. It's really just want all of you to know what we do and what we can provide to people you may know. So Sharsharet provides support to, um, Jewish women, non-Jewish women, and families living at increased risk or with breast or ovarian cancer. And we provide personalized support. So if you know someone who has breast or ovarian cancer, who has questions about a family member with cancer, who has concerns about inherited cancer, um, you should absolutely let them know to give us a call. Um, everything that we provide is free and available to anybody who's in touch with us. So why do we need a Jewish organization to provide cancer support? So there really are two main reasons. One is a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight, which is that there's an increased inherited predisposition to cancer in our community related to an increased likelihood um, of being a carrier of a mutation in BRCA1. The second reason is culturally meaningful support. And um, there are special and specific issues that apply to uh, Jewish women that don't apply to other women related to cancer, and we're able to provide that kind of culturally meaningful support. What's the 
genetic counselor. So that happens to be um, what I do for a living. Um, I have a master's degree in genetic counseling. Um, and what genetic counselors do is really to provide support in the whole process of the genetic test. So I can help people figure out what's the right genetic test for them to take. Um, I help with the logistics of the testing itself, where to go, how to get the test. And then most importantly, once the results of the test come back, I'm there to help explain the implication of the results. And I specialize in oncology, which is cancer, but there are multiple areas of practice where genetic counselors work, um, including prenatal, pediatrics, um, and adult. And uh, I happen to love what I do. I think uh, there's always something new to learn in genetics. Um, and it's really nice to be able to explain to someone when they're in a panic, I just got this result back, what does it mean uh, to be able to, to, you know, sit down with people and really help them um, figure out what comes next. Um, so why have a genetic test done? Um, who, who should get a genetic test? Should you? Should your parents? Should anybody? Um, what will the results mean? for you or for your family members. Um, and because we're talking about something inherited, discussing it amongst relatives is a really important but really difficult piece of this. So we're gonna talk a little bit about all of these issues. So this slide is actually a postcard that Sharsheret publishes and I've discovered it's a really uh, great slide to put up for a PowerPoint presentation because it just hits the five really most important things that I would like you to go away from this presentation, understanding about cancer genetics. So we're gonna start on the um, bottom left where it says one in 40. And one in 40 is an important number to us because one in 40 Ashkenazi Jews, and that includes both men and women, um, can carry a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2. And I'm really happy to see that at tonight's presentation, we have men in attendance. It's so important um, for both men and women to um, get this message because both men and women carry these mutations equally. So if there was a woman who came in and got tested and found out it was positive, there would be a 50-50 chance whether she inherited it from her father or from her mother. And so sometimes when people are looking at their family tree, they're thinking, well, this is a women's disease, so I wanna look at my mother, my mother's sisters, my mother's mother, my, my own sisters. People don't always think that they need to also look at their father's side of the family. And sometimes the fact that there's a mutation present can be hidden by the fact that men are less likely to get cancer if they carry one of these mutations. And so in small families that predominate in men, the family history may not be apparent. And for this reason, we think it's really important um, if you have Ashkenazi ancestry, and that's being Jewish from Eastern Europe, that it's really important for you to think about having a test, even if there isn't a whole bunch of family history. Um, and because what can happen sometimes is people get surprised. Someone has a small family, they don't realize they should be concerned, um, they get a mammogram and what seems like it's coming out of nowhere, um, they have an inherited mutation. Um, 
And if they had known about it in advance, they might have been able to do things differently. Um, so in today's genetic tests, we don't only look at BRCA1 and 2. There are lots of other genes besides BRCA1 and 2 that can predispose to cancer. And some of those are listed here, um, ATM, CHECK2, uh, genes associated with Lynch syndrome or PALB2. Um, and so most of the time nowadays, because genetic testing has become much less expensive, uh, once you're being tested for one gene, they throw in tests for, you know, 40, 50 or more genes. Um, and the bigger test we do, the bigger chance we have to find something that could be important. So what's the benefit of having this genetic test? Why would you even want to know? And this is a very common question that people ask. People say to me, you know what? I'm going to be careful about my screening. I'm going to start getting my mammograms, you know, in my late 30s, my early 40s. Um, I, I get a breast exam from my doctor. Why do I really need to know about this? And what's important to know is that when someone tests positive, we take care of them very differently than we would if they never had a genetic test. And so besides the opportunity for prophylactic surgery, which means sometimes people um, have a mastectomy or have their ovaries removed before cancer is there, but besides those possibilities, there is screening available, um, which includes an annual breast MRI um, that can find cancer at a must, much, much earlier stage. And so, for us, um, for whom um, saving a life is so, so important, we have the opportunity here by making this testing available and taking advantage of it, having the possibility of saving our own life or possibly saving the life of a family member who ends up being tested. Um, and finally, um, very often, in fact, probably most of the time when people have this test done, the results are negative. And it's very important to interpret the negative result based on what's going on in the family. And that's because there are other genes that we don't yet know how to look for or that we're just beginning to understand that can predispose to cancer. So just because someone has a negative result, even if the test includes 80 genes, uh, that doesn't mean that they couldn't be at an increased hereditary risk to develop cancer. So it's really important to understand all of these facts and to speak um, with someone who understands these things like a genetic counselor um, before you make a lot of decisions about um, how to proceed. So the test results, a genetic counselor is going to interpret the test results based on the family history. Uh, so let's say someone calls me up and they say, um, Peggy, I got genetic testing and Thank God it was negative. Um, what does that mean for me? So the first thing I want to know is I want to take a look at their family tree um, and see who in their family has had cancer and, and um, how old they were when they had cancer. Um, and then I want to know, did anybody in their family ever have any genetic testing? So let's imagine my caller says to me, well, Peggy, you know, my mother, my aunt, um, both had breast cancer, I have a cousin who had ovarian cancer, so there's clearly a lot of cancer in the family, but my result is negative. So then I would say, well, did any of your family members have a genetic test? And none of them did. So now I'm not reassured. 
because there could be something that's causing the cancer in that family that we don't know how to look for. And so that person still has to be extremely careful about their breast cancer screening. Now let's change the story a little bit. Let's say same per, a per, new person calls me, Peggy, I have this strong family history. My mother has a mutation in BRCA1, but I got tested and my result is negative. What does that mean? So you may be able, if you're following my storyline here, for this person, this is much better news. This is what we call a true negative. So that means we know since the mother tested positive for a BRCA1 mutation, that that's likely a lot of the cause for her cancer, if not the cancer in the whole family. And the fact that the daughter did not inherit that makes it much less likely that she will develop cancer. And it doesn't mean that she'll never get breast cancer because we know anybody can get breast cancer. Most of the time when people get breast cancer, it's not inherited. It can happen to any of us. But that person whose test is negative has a similar risk to the general population and not the heightened risk that goes along with um, being a carrier or belonging to a family with a lot of cancer. And so it's really, really important when this type of testing is being done that it be something that it be talked about um, in a family. And this is a place where you can start to do something um, to help the health of your family. This is something that you can talk about with your parents, with your cousins, with your siblings, and try to find out what's going on in my family history and should somebody think about having a genetic test. So how do you get a test? So my favorite way for people to get a test is to meet with a genetic counselor. And that's because uh, myself and my colleagues, we understand how this testing works. We probably know based on what kind of insurance you have, which lab we should send your test to so that you're most likely to get coverage. Um, we know how to explain the implications for the results um, and we're gonna help make this happen for you. Uh, so that's my number one uh, choice, but not everybody is gonna wanna go and meet with a genetic counselor. Um, so there are ways that you can get tested on the internet. Uh, and so I would not go to um, just any old site. Um, you wanna make sure you get a medical grade test. So for example, getting a test at 23andMe um, 23andMe is a great test if you want to find out if you really have 100% Ashkenazi ancestry and do you have any long-lost cousins that you don't know about. But if you're looking for medical information, it's the wrong place to go. Um, there are some other labs uh, like uh, Color or Invitae who will permit you to go online, buy a test, they'll send you the kit, you spit in the tube, you send it back, and if you need, they'll help you um, get in touch with a genetic counselor to provide some explanation. And then a new option that is not available yet, but hopefully will be launching um, in the next couple of month months is JScreen. And many of you may be familiar with JScreen because they've been offering carrier screening for those disorders that um, adults can be carriers for that don't affect them, but can affect their children. This is the kind of testing that people want to get done um, before they get married or before they have children. 
So they're going to be launching a cancer screening test in addition to their carrier screening test. Um, and you're hoping that'll be available soon. And that may be another good option to consider. And they will have um, genetic counseling as a part of their system. So if you need more support, how do you find a genetic counselor? So uh, genetic counselors, um, most genetic counselors belong to the National Society of Genetic Counselors. And uh, we have a website which is located at nsgc.org. And there's a searchable directory of genetic counselors on that site. So if you go to nsgc.org, and there are a bunch of hexagons, as you see the hexagon that's this picture here, and it says on it, find a genetic counselor, and you click on that, and you'll be able to find somebody. Lots of genetic counselors these days are working remotely because there's really no physical exam that's part of the genetic counseling process. It's really a conversation. Um, and they can send you the kit that you can spit into. It turns out that when you're having uh, genetic testing done, sometimes people worry. They say, well, you know, it seems like blood would be a much better substance to do the test than perhaps saliva, but really it's the same cells. And either a saliva or a blood test is good. What's more important is what lab you send it to, and that's why you want to make sure that the lab you send to is uh, reliable. Now, the other place to go if you need <coughs> more support is Charcheret. And that's because one of my roles at Charcheret is to answer people's questions. So if you uh, don't get to ask a question tonight and there's something uh, burning in your mind that you'd really like to know about cancer genetics, you can absolutely be in touch with us. Um, and this is our contact information. This is my last slide. And I'll leave it up as I finish talking. If you'd like to write down my email address, I would be very happy to hear from you. Um, sometimes people just want to know uh, what is it like to be a genetic counselor? Do you think it's a good career for me? Uh, sometimes people just want to know, this is my family tree. Do you think I really need to get tested? Do I really need to be worried? Or who's the best person in my family to be tested? Um, so as I said, I'd be happy to hear from any or all of you. Um, and um, that's all I have to say. So I will stop my share. Thank you so much for that. Um, now we're going to have Rav Willig speak. Rav Willig is the Rosh Hashiva at YU. He is the Rav at Young Israel Riverdale, and he's here to share our halakhic perspective on this topic. So, Rav Willig. Thank you so much for inviting me to this riveting session. I must tell you that it's... Uh, not the first time I've heard about this topic, but um, maybe two excellent presentations preceded my brief remarks. The primary responsibility of a Rav is to make sure that his community is safe. If you look in the initial you will see that the Mishnah comments that every rabbi is required to teach his congregants immediately that on Shabbos you don't come to the rabbi, you go straight to the hospital. And someone who was a nishal, that they come to him on Shabbos to ask this question, is criticized. They should be trained in advance not to come to ask the question, just run to the hospital if there's any doubt that life is in danger. This is a specific micro case 
of Hilchus Shabbos. This, of course, applies macro to all areas of preserving life. Right now, just for another example, we're in the middle of a coronavirus crisis. And here, too, the Rabbonim, I believe, are charged with teaching those who follow that the halacha demands absolute care as much as possible in being safe to see to it that you do not catch this terrible virus. The masks, the distance, the avoiding of, of places where others are not masked or not distanced. It goes counter to some of our base uh, instincts as, as from Jews to gather together. It's up to the Rabbanim to teach their Balabatim, Talmidim, that this is an exception. One should not be utilizing this normally Yetzir Tov to do Chesed, which has become a Yetzir Hara in the context of the danger of Corona. Just today, I was on two different Zoom sessions related to the Corona, one relating to other parts of the community that are not taking the same attitude as we are, and the second with a Dr. Afet, a primary uh, expert in vaccinations, about the safety and effectiveness of the upcoming vaccinations. The take-home lesson for me was that everyone is required to become vaccinated as soon as the vaccination is available, given your age, given your, your career, the different priorities. And the second take-home lesson for me was that there may be others who disagree with us fundamentally on many issues, including what we would consider pikuach nefesh issues, which are obviously of a much more serious order. But even then, in my view, we have to learn to live with others who have different opinions. And I'm fully aware of the fact that Shasherit has its opponents, though we should be talking about these things, da-da, da-da, da-da. I received critiques. There was a, this goes back a long time ago when they um, were trying to get awareness and they uh, were going to bring a, uh, a van in front of the Riverdale Mikvah so people could become tested. And I spoke about it in public from the pulpit on Shabbos. Rabbi, it's not appropriate to talk about this in the shul and Shabbos in the pulpit in front of the Aaron Kodesh. To which my response was, if this saves one life, one life, it's very appropriate. You have to talk to the people where they are, when they are, when they're listening, even if it seems a bit unseemly, life in, protecting life is more important. And therefore I say, as I've said before, that my view is that whatever the medical community recommends in terms of testing should be followed. We heard before about um, testing for, for breast cancer, mammograms. Once had a Shila, it was a happened to be some kind of a Taras HaMashpacha Shaila, but in the course of the discussion, it came to my attention that the woman hadn't seen a doctor for 10 years. I said, I'm not talking to you. I will not answer any of your questions until you first go to a doctor and get the various tests, pap smears, rambling, whatever, whatever the medical community insists that you, that you take. I don't want to talk to you until then. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're required to follow the doctor's orders both in terms of staying healthy, in terms of testing, screening, whatever's recommended. Now, I know there are different medical opinions on who should be screened. 
You've heard a little bit about, a little bit about it before. Should everyone be, should it be universal screening? Should it be limited to those who have uh, first degree relatives? I don't pass in which medical opinion is necessarily the correct one. I do try to find out the the medical people who, whom I trust that I deal with and hear what they have to say. And I try very hard to follow through on their recommendations. If they say that X, Y, or Z should be screened, I say you should be screened. I know that there are great rabbis, much, much greater than myself, who are against all screening. They're against screening. They're against colonoscopies. Some great rabbis are against vaccines. There are different opinions in the, in the, in the, in the rabbinical world. In my view, every Rav is supposed to follow the doctors that he trusts. And I feel that I have a large number of physicians, both in my shul as members, both in, thank God, and many of my students of all these years in the yeshiva. And I talk to them. I know them. They know me. We're not strangers. And they tell me what they think. As soon as they have the right credentials, I'm more inclined to hear what they have to say. But of course... There are always other opinions which have to be considered. So just to summarize, I believe that the two presentations that we heard were very, very important for everyone to hear, for everyone to hear. I was frankly a little bit uh, floored to hear our first presenter mention my name. Of course, I have no idea the names of, of anyone that the doctor asked me about, but I stand by the psak, get the first opportunity. I say this, I've said this many, many times. Don't, I don't care, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah. Do, if it's dangerous, you do it now. And don't make hashbainis, I'll be able to fast. That was a false, that's a Yetzirah. The same as the Yetzirah to go to a wedding with 100 people with no masks. You must have a Gemilas Chesed, Simchas Chesed Mekalim. So it's the Yetzirah to postpone a, a treatment until after Yom Kippur would have to fast. No, if you have a serious illness, life-threatening illness, you're not allowed to fast and you should not try to make chokhmets to enable you to fast. I stick by that sack from 13 years ago. I'm glad that, thank God, it was followed and I believe it's working. And we hope that all of us, men and women, we heard before, men also carry these, these genes. Most, I dare say that most men don't know that. I kid you not. I think that most men don't know that men carry, I, I know because I've heard from people like you. So I, that's how I know. But the, yes, the average Shiva Bacham, and in, 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 even, in, even in our base medish, which is a much more enlightened base medish than others, without going into details, I, I dare say that, I would guess that most of the Tzavimim don't even know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm underestimating the sophistication and the medical knowledge of our Tzavimim. But it wouldn't surprise me. And that's very, very important. It's, uh, it's critical. I've been involved in many different genetic issues with students men and women and parents. It's a very delicate field, very delicate. Frankly, I've been so hardened by the fact that so many Nishay Chayel, Benos Yisrael, who are Shomros Torah mitzvahs, have gone into this field. When I began my rabbinic career 40-something years ago, I think there was one person, I knew one, one of, that I knew, one observant genetic counselor that I knew about from a very distinguished family both her own and her husband's. Very distinguished. And she went into the field way back in the 70s. Since then, Baruch Hashem, I know many people who are going into this field. And you know, if you're a firm person, you feel a greater comfort level 
with a firm genetic counselor. That's just a reality. And not that she's more or less qualified than anybody else, but you need a comfort zone. A lot in genetic counseling, as the word counseling itself implies, is a comfort level. And I'm very impressed by the confidence that I've witnessed among the room genetic counselor community, which has expanded by leaps and bounds in the last few decades. And we wish that they will be successful in saving many lives as they get proper counseling, even as the physicians will save many lives by their treatments. And ultimately, the bonus will be saving lives as God helps those who do their best to help themselves. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we're now going to open the floor to questions. So you can raise your Zoom hand if you have. We don't think 18 is the ideal age. Um, and we say 25, and that's because 25 is the age where you might do something differently if the results came back positive. So if someone is BRCA1 or BRCA2 positive, then it's recommended that they start getting a breast MRI at that age. And it's not because we expect anybody's gonna have cancer when they're 25, but it's really helpful to have um, imaging over a number of years that looks normal so that we can see if something suddenly looks different, then that's uh, a reason to be concerned. So um, 25 is a, is a good age to think about it. Some people say, 30. Another thing to think about is if you're going to have children. Um, so sometimes um, people might want to get tested before they have children because it's actually possible with um, using IVF and um, pre-implantation genetic testing um, to make sure that you don't pass the mutation to the next generation. Now, that's not something that every person would necessarily want to do because IVF is difficult and expensive. But it may be that someone would want to know about that um, before they have kids. So those are all things to take into account in deciding on when when to be tested. Thank you. And then I actually have a follow-up question for Rav Willig on this. Um, so let's say you have someone who finds out that they are a carrier and, or, you know, they're predisposed to having this and it might be likely that they'll end up having breast cancer or ovarian cancer. Like is the, I'm sure it's a case by case scenario as well, but like, have you been dealing with Shilas where people are recommended to have a mastectomy or um, have their ovaries removed like prior childbirth and could that have implications or I don't know, do you want to share some of your experience with that maybe? Little I understand about the medicine, again, based on the experts in the field, the two procedures, both mastectomy and oophorectomy, are recommended in certain situations. Obviously, the difference being, once you have an oophorectomy, your, your ovaries are gone, and, um, you know, if you want to have children, it's an issue. Um, there are families that wish to have many children, and in, once you're in your early 30s, there are some cases in which oophorectomy is already recommended then. Even in the early 30s, that could happen. Now, it's obviously not in the hands of every person on this Zoom who is a single woman to decide, I'm going to get married tomorrow so that, uh, and I have my children right away so that uh, I, I don't have a problem. 
but it is something to be considered. Again, in the general population, where there's no first-degree relative that you know about that has any history of BRCA1 or 2, like anything else, people get married and not everyone knows what they have, what they carry, etc., etc. Um, if you have a, such a relative, at least I thought you were going to ask a much more significant question for, that I get, which is, must you tell anybody? It's a Shaduchim question. That question I've gotten more than once. I carry it, or my mother carries it. Is a mother required to tell the daughter that, that she carries it? These are, these are very serious, serious questions. Very serious questions. And Halacha, I've actually spoken about it. I've actually even written about it. And uh, I found something quite amazing. My first response was what the rabbis have said in Eretz Yisrael, which is if you have a first-degree relative that carries BRCA1 or 2, you are required to be tested. By halacha. You're required to be tested, and if it's negative, it's great. If it's positive, if there's any kind of shidduch prospect, you must inform the prospect of your the fact that you carry BRCA1 or 2 so that that individual can make an informed decision whether to marry someone who carries that. I, if I understand the degree, the chance of getting cancer sometime during your life is way up there. I think maybe even over 80%, according to some, some uh, statisticians. And that's a, it's a big number. Others will say, look, in life, well, there are a lot of things. You know, Hopefully you won't get it. And if you do get it, you'll be treated. Or you can always have these kinds of you know, operations if necessary later on. So I'm not going to worry. It's not going to affect my choice. So I, usually, I always said that the rabbis in Israel say it, so who might argue with these great rabbis in Israel? So I had some experiences in the field. And I believe that my position changed somewhat for the following reason. And it has to do a little with Sharsheret. Sharsheret is an organization, a very, very important organization, very important. Individuals who are linked to Sharsheret, what it means is, I can't say for every single person, it would certainly raise a red flag if someone knows that someone's involved in Shasharet, that there's likely to be some kind of a family history of BRCA1 or 2 in the, in the family. Likely, nothing is 100% sure. And so you get a phone call. The phone calls about a certain such and such and such. And what are you supposed to say? You know, the rabbi is told certain things in confidence, and certain confidential information you're not at liberty to share. On the other hand, for a rabbi to tell a lie, it's also not, not allowed. We're not supposed to tell a lie. So what do you do? You're evasive. Rabbis specialize sometimes in being evasive. So what happens? So depends who's asking the question. The person asking the question is a sophisticated person and understands all the around and around. They'll thank you very much for your answer. And the boy will never meet the girl without my saying anything. But at the same time, you'll find many, many other boys and their mothers and fathers who didn't bother asking the question, didn't call Rabbi Willig or anybody else, and marriages take place. Now, if a, a mother like this doesn't want to tell her daughters anything, listens to me, they don't, not everybody listens to me. I don't have to follow up with every single mother in this situation. Even if they don't want to tell their daughter in the shit of process, it 
seems to me the wise thing to do is to tell the daughter, as soon as she is married, to give, give her uh, options. And, you know, some women upon marriage practice contraception. I'm not a fan of that practice, but I'm a realist. I know it exists in, in our circles and in large numbers. But if a woman knows that she has this, this gene and she managed face it or to be 10 years from now, she may decide, hey, I'm going to rush to have all my kids now because I don't want to, otherwise I might want to have just a few and a few more in my 30s. But that may, may not be much less, less of an option at the present time. I will say it really is an option because it's something thing called freezing eggs, freezing embryos. These things are now options which didn't always exist uh, when I started my rabbinate. And it's important that women be aware of these things. My general my general approach is that knowledge is a good thing. Knowledge is a good thing. At the same time, the, the sack from Eretz Yisrael, that every woman who carries this gene is required to tell her children, and they're required to tell the, uh, a, a young man, I believe is attenuated by the fact that there are people who, when they're looking for a shidduch, don't seem to be concerned. They don't seem to be concerned. Some are, and they ask questions, and they get evasive answers, and they walk away. And others who don't bother asking the question means it's not such a great concern for them. This is not my invention. The Ran says so in Masech Tuxubus, that the people, things which could be easily discovered, and someone doesn't bother discovering it, he doesn't care so much about it. So ironically, ironically, the less likely this event or characteristic or a medical issue is the greater disclosure obligation. You cannot attribute it to the fact that the person just didn't bother uh, asking about it because they don't care about it. It never entered their wildest dreams because it's so rare. A Barack, as you know, is not so rare. We heard from the genetic counts. It's not so rare. And you put that together with some family uh, connection to a Shasharet, if you are that concerned about it, you'd call the rabbi. Get an, get, an eva- get an evasive answer and say, I'm sorry. But if you don't call the rabbi, means that it's not a concern to you. And therefore, I do not believe it must be revealed in that case. I changed my mind based on my experiences. But at the same time, as I would tell such a woman, if your kid, you don't want to tell your daughter, you want them to get married or fine. After they're married, they should get tested immediately just to make sure what their, what their various options are. That's what I think. Oh. Thank you. I just had a question for Professor Rabinovich. Um, I know that you mentioned that one of the things that you learned the most from your experience um, was being able to accept what other people were giving to you um, and being able to lean on your neighbors and your family and your community for help. Um, I was just curious in terms of with your experience going through it, if there was something that other people were doing that they felt was helpful was helpful for you or something that they thought they were contributing, um, but to you was maybe not so helpful and they didn't necessarily realize and it's something that people should maybe be more sensitive to, to people who are going through a similar situation. That's a wonderfully sensitive question to be asking. I think I was lucky. I never came across something that struck me as being inappropriate or insensitive. Um, Some people would call And I learned early on that I had the right to either answer the phone or not, that either they would understand that I wasn't responding right away, or if they didn't, frankly, that was too bad on them. 
when people would send texts and not expect a response or send notes and not expect a response that relieved the burden for me and I enjoyed that more. Um, sometimes it was easier when people dropped off things rather than say, what can I do for you? Because that was always very difficult. It was also difficult um, my daughters, I kind of her. I have six children, a boy and five girls. Like the girls felt that they could take care of everything. They didn't want to accept help. So sometimes when that was taken away and the things came, that was also, but that worked for us. I would say for you, offer specifics. Don't just say, what can I do to help? Oh, you're going to the doctor. Do you need a ride? Oh, somebody has to pick up the kids from school. Can I do that? The more specific you can and take your cue from them and from your degree of relationship with them. Sometimes there's also people who do know, um, usually know who like that close circle of friends is and you could sometimes reach out to them. I want to be of help. What can I do? Um, I have a question actually for Peggy. Um, so what's like, how is it a good way to bring this up with your parents to learn about your family history? Um, if you don't know it already, any ideas? Uh, I think you can just um, start, I think, by showing interest in um, the extended family. You know, if you ask, start by asking some questions about um, relatives that you may not have gotten to meet and what were they like. Um, and then you can, you know, ease health history into that. It doesn't have to be focused just on cancer. Um, but what were some of the health problems that people have had in the past? And is there something um, that would be good for me to know about? I know uh, when I go to the doctor, they want to know what my what diseases my relatives have had. What did my uh, grandparents, my parents die of? So, you know, just in, you know, gently trying to open up um, those um, those areas of conversation. Thank you. I think we're going to wrap it up here. I want to thank everyone who spoke. Um, really appreciated it. And everyone who came, I hope you guys enjoyed. Um, if you have any last minute questions, feel free to share to stay on. Um, and thank you so much for coming. Have a good night.